Let's, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we thank You so much that Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, that it does endure from generation to generation. Lord Jesus, we praise You as the King of this kingdom. And now as we turn to Your Word, we ask You to reveal Your truth to us, that You would put Your kingdom into our heart in a greater measure, that You would fill us, Lord, that You would fill us with great trust and hope in You, and that You would do signs and wonders in our lives as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing a series through the book of Daniel, which was written about 600 BC, so a long time ago, 2,600 or so years ago. And this particular text comes at an interesting time. Just after last week, we saw that a few of Daniel's friends had been thrown into a fiery furnace and somehow Jesus appeared with them in the fiery furnace and protected them and so revealed that God was the master, not Nebuchadnezzar. God was the one who rules the heavens, not Nebuchadnezzar. But now as we come to chapter 4, we see the Babylonian king, the one who is willing to throw God's people into a fire, writes his own chapter. In the book. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've thought about this before, but this chapter is penned by Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's amazing. God's word is incredible uh, and so intricate uh, for us to look at today. So, uh, this was an edict uh, sent out by the greatest king, the, the king of the Babylonian Empire at the time. It's a massive kingdom that sort of stretched all the way down to Egypt and all the way uh, down to Saudi Arabia, north to the northern ends of Iran. Uh, it was a massive uh, kingdom at the time. And this great king is willing to point out there is one higher than him. There is a most high God, and he is willing to testify that this God is higher than every other God. There's something that, in particular that I want to point out to you today, and it comes uh, at verse 2. It says this, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So this morning, we're going to look at the signs and the wonders of God. Now, if you've been around churches before, or you might have seen uh, something on television before, when churches ordinarily or a preacher ordinarily talks about signs and wonders, you think things are going to get a little bit exciting today. You think that someone might get a special healing today, which God does. Let's be honest, God does heal people. You might expect a sign in the sky. You might expect something very unusual to happen. But the signs and wonders that we see here are different to the signs and wonders we ordinarily think of. Now, of course, we can't forget that in the New Testament, Jesus did amazing signs and touched the lives of people in particular ways, particularly through healings and miracles. And through, you know, a, a storm would come up and Jesus would speak and the storm would quiet down because he has authority over the natural world because he, Jesus is God. But what we see in this particular text is the signs and wonders of God are about, firstly, humbling people to glorify himself. That is a sign and wonder of God that Nebuchadnezzar wants to testify to us today. The second thing uh, we see in our text that God is doing as a sign and wonder is glorifying his own name through our story. And that is exactly what he does for this King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the third thing that we will see that God does is God glorifies his own name through his own story. That is a sign and wonder of God. So let me first uh, bring up to you the humbling that God does to us in order to glorify himself, the sign and wonder that he does. Now, uh, chapter four is, as I said, penned by Nebuchadnezzar himself, but I want you to just recognize something particularly interesting because in chapter three, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar sort of got a bit full of himself full of pride and was thinking, I'm the best person in the universe because he was the greatest king perhaps the world had ever seen at that time. And in chapter 3 and verse 7, the uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, he'd set up this uh, giant figure of golden statue of himself and he played the music and he expected that all peoples, nations and languages would fall down and worship this image that he had set up. So that was where Nebuchadnezzar's heart was in chapter 3. Now when we get to chapter 4, what does he say? That uh, We see this in verse 1 of chapter 4, that all peoples, nations and languages that dwell on the earth should see that the kingdom of the Most High God is an everlasting kingdom, that his dominion endures for generation to generation. So something has happened to Nebuchadnezzar to move him to thinking that he is the greatest person and he wants to be declared to all the nations of the world and all the peoples and the languages of the world that he's the greatest person. And now he's saying that God is the greatest person in the universe. Nebuchadnezzar himself has undergone an amazing humbling act. It is a sign and it is a wonder of God that he would humble people before himself. Now, uh, this is actually, this chapter is the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar for the, for the whole book of Daniel. And so really, this is, Daniel's, uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar's final opportunity to share what his life is about. The last chapter of his life, if you will, written down for us to hear. And this is, and this is him saying, it's all about God's greatness. Now, just for you and I this morning, it's important for us to think for, about ourselves. What will the final chapter of our life be written about? One of the things that I've noticed in the book of Daniel is it has a lot to say about how we live our lives for God long term. So Daniel is a very old man. People think in his late 80s by the time uh, the book finishes, but it starts when he's roughly a teenager. And so Daniel has this life which seems to be always dedicated to God. And when we see, get to chapter 4, we see someone whose life wasn't dedicated to God. In fact, he was a pagan king. And yet his last act that is recorded in this book is to declare that there is one greater than him. So I want to ask you, how will you write the last act of your life? And I'm particularly thinking of those who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. How will you write the last act of your life? Will it be about you or will it be about God? One of the dangers that we see, and this is a danger that hit Nebuchadnezzar, is in in our life, When we hit those age brackets, we tend to be the wealthiest we've ever been, the most successful we've ever been, and we tend to have life's comforts more than we've had before. So we have an opportunity then. We have perhaps an even greater opportunity 
to declare God's greatness in our life because of our influence, our stage of life, our wealth, our status, all those kinds of things. Or we have a great opportunity to use those things for self-benefit. And our culture will tell you that you need to live large for yourself. And yet God's witness to us today is you need to write your last chapter for him. I was listening to a sermon this week and the preacher said it pretty clearly. He said, how are you going to write the last chapter of your life before you stand before King Jesus? Because that is what is coming next. How will you finish? And so we see a lot, we learn a lot from Nebuchadnezzar how he finished. He finished to write his last chapter for God's glory and sake. So God will persist in our lives like he did with King Nebuchadnezzar until we recognize that he is the most high God. I want you to notice something else. is that Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud king and yet God is in the business of bringing down those who are proud. We know this from uh, verse 37 of chapter 4. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Chapter 4 is this journey that Nebuchadnezzar goes of great self-exaltation and incredible humility. And then he finally realises that God is God and not him. That God will pierce our pride. That is a sign and a wonder of God. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, When God, therefore, wishes to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually, either because we are not moved when he chastises us with his hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then we return again to our former torpor. He is, therefore, compelled to redouble his blows. Calvin is saying here that God is in the business of are bringing down prideful people, particularly his people. God is in the business of doing that. And when we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he has had ample opportunity through dreams, through amazing works of God to, be, to become humble. And yet, you know what? They didn't do it. He, saw them, he threw the men into the fiery furnace as we went through last week. They came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. And one of them in there looked like one of the sons of God. And yet, does that change his heart? Momentarily, but not completely. John Calvin is saying here that God is doing a work at us. He's chipping away at our pride. And it's only through breaking us, breaking off the hard edges that he will produce a masterpiece in our lives. That is what he is doing. God's work is a little bit like what uh, happened to a little boy called Eustace in the C.S. Lewis's story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So if you're familiar with it, uh, there's a young boy called Eustace, and he is not a, not a kind boy, let's put it that way. He is arrogant. He is prideful. He is full of himself, but he's drawn into this adventure, which he realises eventually that would change him more deeply than he possibly thought, that he thought possibly um, that could happen. So in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they end up, there's sort of this amazing story where this group of children, uh, they go onto a, a ship in a magical land. Uh, they travel from island to island. They eventually end up on a particular island. Uh, they're kind of exploring this island. 
And uh, Eustace sort of gets off on his own. He thinks he knows better than everyone, so he's happy to go off on his own travels. He ends up going into a cave. And he sees all this kind of, you know, there's gold in the cave, and he's quite excited that there's a a cave full of gold. He thinks to himself how rich he might become because there's a cave full of gold. But he's not thinking very straight because... Most uh, children who read fantasy novels and had the read before to them, they'll know that if there's a cave full of gold, it's probably a dragon's cave. Well, anyway, uh, Eustace is so uh, pleased with himself that he falls asleep, but he, he sort of put a um, golden bangle onto his arm uh, while he did that, just to, as a keepsake. He didn't want to lose it. And he woke up and he was turned into a dragon. He'd become a dragon. But as you sort of read through the story, you realise that uh, what was actually happening in Eustace's heart was he was starting to display dragonish qualities even before he became a physical dragon. You know, he was you know, arrogant, prideful, he was full of himself, and so the only natural result, and actually what happened physically, was that he turned into a dragon. Unfortunately, by, becoming, by fully realising what he was in his heart, by being physically a dragon when he was sort of mentally and emotionally a dragon as well, it didn't work out too well for him. People who sort of, you know, tried their best to tiptoe around him or to be kind to him, they were fearful of him. And so he realised that fully becoming the thing that he was was not good. And he wanted to change himself too, this Eustace, and he tried, but he couldn't. He tried to claw off this magical band which had turned him to a dragon and he couldn't do it. He tried to bite it off, but he couldn't do it. And so one day he's met by the, uh, this uh, uh, incredible figure. It's a giant lion called Aslan. He sort of is quite disappointed with himself because he's become this dragon. And he disappears out into the mountains and he's met by this giant lion. Now this lion says that, uh, actually speaks to Eustace and, and asks him to undress himself from the, lion, uh, from the dragon suit. And so this is what he says to him. Uh, he says, undress, take off the, the dragon suit. And so Eustace sort of claws at himself, his own body, and you know, like reptiles do, so claws off the outer skin and throws it away. But then he looks into the pool and he's still got dragon skin. He's still covered in dragon skin. And so he sort of claws at himself and tries to do it again, but he can't get it off. And then the lion speaks to him and says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked away a scab in a sore place, it hurts, but oh, it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker, and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. 
And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. Now, what happened to Eustace was he realised that he needed to change. His dragonish internal qualities had become dragonish external qualities. But he couldn't change himself because he couldn't go deep enough to tear the dragon's skin off. He needed someone external to do it for him. Now, the truth of our lives for you and I is that we need someone else to tear off the pride that coats our lives. We can't do it ourselves. You might try and try and try and like peeling layers off, but you'll never get to the heart of it. This is the problem with self-effort and coming to God. It seems to have you know, momentary success, but unless God himself does it, it won't get deep to the heart. That is why Christian people often find themselves working really, really, really hard to fix up problem areas in their lives, and then they find that no matter how hard they work, they can't change themselves. And this is true not just for Christian people, but for anyone. Because there is this internal thing. There is this inside that must be removed and changed, and only God, like the giant lion Aslan, has the power to do it. So God is in the business, in his signs and wonders, of humbling us to glorify himself. But he's also in the business of glorifying his name through our story. I was um, pruning a tree uh, over the past uh, a couple of weeks ago at my mum's house. And it was, it's a mulberry tree. Now, mulberry trees are beautiful trees when they're covered in leaves. And when trees are pruned, they actually don't look so nice. You know, so you take them back to the, the, um, the bare branches. But the purpose of doing it is so it will fruit again. Now, you don't, of course, prune a tree in order to make it fruit and then worship the tree itself, do you? We don't know, get this beautiful fruit from a lovely tree and go, oh, what a wonderful tree. Praise the tree. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Although I'm, I do know some people actually do that, as it turns out. But it is ridiculous. The point is to praise the maker of the tree. But the maker of the tree knows that trees need to be pruned and perhaps become a little ugly and become a bit more humble in order to bear more fruit. And that is exactly the way God works in our lives. And that is exactly the way God is going to work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, has decided to tell the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for him. What are the signs and wonders that God has done for Nebuchadnezzar? Is to prune him down until, until a stump. The actual vision, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar gets in the next part of the chapter is of this giant tree which is pruned down to a stump. And that is the way that God works in our lives. The bigger we grow in pride, the more God needs to trim us down to humble us. So if you are going through, let me just pause and apply this for a minute. If you are going through a humbling experience in life at the moment, firstly, know that God is achieving a good purpose in your life by doing it. But secondly, know that it's because of pride that he's doing it. And what does God do? He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Whenever we 
you know, are filled with more of ourselves and we, we want to be uh, better looked upon by others and we, you know, we're filled with uh, self-ambition, God is in the business of humbling us before him. And, that, and the, the third thing I want to say about that, just briefly, is that that means that even the worst things in our lives have beautiful purpose to them. Because why is a tree pruned? In order for it to grow and fruit. Why would God be doing a humbling thing in your life except in order for you to grow and bear fruit? So God is in the business of glorifying his name through our story. I want you to notice that uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell everyone about his humbling story. This message is to go out to all peoples, nations and languages. To everyone. Nebuchadnezzar puts out an edict to everybody. This would have been publicly proclaimed his story of humiliation and humbling and God's exaltation above him. Why would he do that? Because he realised that there is something greater than him. And it is better for him to tell that story than for him to hold it back. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever thought about this? That God's work in humbling our lives is a great story to tell. That's why you often get Christians will share their testimony with other people and they'll say how low they went before they realised how good God is and that's where the transformation happened. And this is the work that God does through Nebuchadnezzar and this is the work that God wants to do through our lives. And God himself is not exempt from this. Of course, this great proclaimed good news of great humility and suffering and then great, great exaltation is the story of Jesus, is it not? The New Testament says we proclaim Christ crucified. Jesus on a cross, killed, suffering for the sake of the sins of others. That's the message that we proclaim. And as Jesus went down in the most humbling place into the grave, he's raised up into the highest place. So this message of humility and exaltation for God is God's message. It's Nebuchadnezzar's message. And so it should be our message. There seems to be a real openness to Nebuchadnezzar, an honesty and a willingness to share about his personal failure in order that God would get the glory. An honesty and openness and willingness to share about his personal failure in order that God would get the glory. Why is that powerful? Because none is good but God. And so if we only tell other people how good we are, then we're actually stealing God's glory for ourselves. Are we not? But if we actually say, no, there's a great humility to my story. There's a great humbling that I've been through. There's failures that I've had and it's made me see how good God is. Then you are reflecting the glory to him. 
I think of the Apostle Paul as well. Same thing. He talks about himself as the chief of sinners. And yet he was the one who was probably the most effective at proclaiming the goodness of God. There is something that God does in humbling his people in order that they might share their own story with humility, openness and honesty that speaks to the grace of God more than anything else. Christianity is not just about our success stories. It's about God's great work in our lives for his success and glory. The uh, Westminster Catechism goes like this. The, The first part goes like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Somehow Nebuchadnezzar had realized in hindsight that all the things that God had done in humbling him was good because it seemed good to him to tell everyone about it. The greatest ruler of the land is willing to tell his most embarrassing story, his most humiliating story to all the world. Why would he be willing to do that? Because God gets the glory. So what does this tell us? Well, this tells us that suffering and difficulty are not wasted in our lives, but purposeful on God's behalf. Because if God is the king of an everlasting kingdom, if his dominion does endure from generation to generation, then nothing is wasted. All is purposeful. This also tells us that success and pride are far more dangerous than we expect. The signs and wonders of God are to tear down pride, this text tells us. And pride against God or just self, like self-belief that you are better than others, self-belief on looking down upon others or always being in fear of other people and ignoring God is at the root of an evil heart. So success and pride are far more dangerous than we expect. And I want to say one more thing in way of application. The closer we are to God, the less we care about our own glory and the more we care about His. The less prickly we are when other people criticise us, the less concerned we are about how we look or appear before others, Why? Because we don't care. Because we're focused on God himself. Charles Simeon uh, puts Nebuchadnezzar's uh, transformation this way. He says, What glorious evidence was this of the transforming efficacy of divine grace? It is no easy matter for man to acknowledge and confess his pride, but to confess it openly, to take shame to himself for it publicly before all, this is a work of grace indeed. When you share with others, not how good you are, but how good God is, when you're willing to share the humbling parts of your life with others, not just the success stories, what you're pointing to is grace, not your works. If your whole life is built on your success, And how good you are, I dare say your life is not built on grace at all. 
But the heart of the Christian faith is, uh, is grace itself. Because whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is this measure that none is good but God alone. We could never achieve his standards. And so what did he do? He stepped into our world to take the just penalty for our sin upon himself. In great humility, he was willing to do that in order to bring us to himself, to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so why wouldn't we share that story with other people? So God is in the business of humbling us to glorify himself. God is in the business of glorifying his name through our story. And thirdly, God is in the business in his signs and wonders of glorifying his own name through his story. I said the uh, Westminster uh, Catechism goes like this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, John Piper has a take on it. And he says the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. And it's equally true as it turns out. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Now, I touched on this earlier, but I want to re-emphasize this point, that Jesus demonstrates this pattern of humility to glory better than anyone, better than Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar was forced into it, whereas Jesus did it willingly. We read about this from Philippians chapter 2 and from verse 5. This is what it says. At this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to notice something. What is the end of this? To the glory of God the Father. What is the, what is the, the substance, the middle part of it? The humility of Jesus. Now this is where things come together in our lives is when our chief end lines up with God's chief end. If our chief end is to be a humble, God-glorifying person, that will line up with God's chief end, who is the most humble and the most God-glorifying person, Jesus. When those two things line up, that is God's great sign and wonder in our lives. That is true for Nebuchadnezzar, though he had it come upon him because of his great pride, and it's true for Jesus. He willingly chose it because he was truly the greatest in the universe. There was no falsifications for him, and he willingly stepped into the most humble place in all the universe himself. So what does this tell us? Well, it gives us a hopefulness. If you're sick, if you're suffering, if you're undergoing a hardship, you can have hopefulness. 
because of this text. Why? Because we can see that our purpose and God's purpose can be aligned. Because whatever God is doing in our lives, whatever humbling process we're going through, it is producing God's glory. And so that gives us great hope. Why? Because like a pruned tree, he's doing it to make us bear fruit. He's doing it so that we might be that more beautiful masterpiece, not for the sake of the masterpiece itself. We don't go praise the sculpture. We go praise the maker of the sculpture. And so when our chief end and God's chief end line up, you can have great hopefulness in sickness, in suffering and hardship. When you're lonely, Your humbling experience of being lonely means that you can lean not on your own understanding, but on Him. Because when you think about it too much, it gets to you. But when you think about Him, you know you are never alone. But God is with you. And that is your chief end, is to be with Him and His people forever. When you have chronic illness, and it goes on and on and on, and nothing seems to fix it. You can trust that your chief end through this is that God would help you to lean not on yourself, but on him who raises the dead. And so you can be filled with a fullness of joy, which comes not through success and pride, but through humility and the love of God being poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. So it does give us hopefulness. It also gives us comfort during these same things, sickness, suffering and hardship because we know that our process and God's process is the same. That is, that God will be glorified through humility because Jesus, get this, did not step away from suffering but stepped into it. And so you have a rock-solid assurance, as true as there was a cross and a man nailed to that cross and who died on that cross and who was buried in a tomb. You have a promise as rock-solid as that, that he will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what you're going through. And that is comfort to a weary soul. Thirdly, in way of application, God's glory is revealed to a church, a gathering of his people, a local body of believers. When we step into the signs and wonders of God by seeking to humble ourselves before him so that he may get the glory in our lives Because that's what Jesus did and that's the work that Jesus does in our lives. And I think we get this one wrong all the time. We think, particularly in our healthy and wealthy Western world, that God's glory comes when we're successful. That God's glory comes when we're seeing more miracles than the next church. More success stories. But actually, 
God's glory came to Nebuchadnezzar, not when he was at his height, but when he was at his lowest, like a beast, it says. Till seven years had passed over him, he got wet with the dew of heaven, it says, until he realized that God is the most high God. And so let me say to you then, the way up is the way down. God's glory is not found in human pride. God's glory is found in his glory and in our humility. So if we want to be a church, let's, let me speak to you corporately today. If we want to be a church that is on about his glory, that sees the signs and wonders of God, it starts with humility. It starts with humbling ourselves before a mighty God and saying, you are God and I am not. And clinging to the faith that we have in Jesus who has wrought this great work for us by his blood spilled upon a cross and in his resurrection from the dead. I'll finish with a story. Uh, in the fairy tale, The Beauty and the Beast, you might remember it. There's a selfish young prince comes under the spell of an evil witch who then turns him into a beast and the catch is until he learns to love and to be loved in return. Now, as a beast, uh, he is ruled by his selfishness and anger. It's like what was in him before just grows more and more. He drives people away by his bitterness and selfishness and yet, get this, he cannot change himself. And so he spends his life domineering other people, capturing them for his own ends. One day, uh, a woman called Belle enters this castle to free her father who had been captured by the beast. But the beast discovers something through Belle that he'd never seen before. You see, Belle willingly substitutes herself for her father. She frees her father and stays in prison. She takes his place, if you will, in this lifelong prison. In response to this kindness and love that Belle shows to her father and then in turn shows to the beast himself, the beast starts to change. You see, his self-centeredness is worn down by something more powerful than pride. It's worn down by her love. You see, eventually, eventually, this love wins out and destroys the spell of the wicked enchantress who turned the prince into a beast. And so God's way of wearing us down is not just through humbling us through suffering and difficulty and hardship and loneliness and chronic illness and whatever else is going on in our lives. His way of getting right to our heart, because you can be humbled by those things and stay in them. Stay with a hard heart towards God and become bitter. And you can probably think of people who have become bitter. God's way of winning us is through love. Because he was saying, I was willing to substitute myself for you for a greater suffering, a greater hardship, a greater sickness unto death. And to take it all the way to the grave for you. And so it's in love 
that he will win our hearts and it's in love that he will glorify his name through his story and do these signs and wonders in our lives. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your uh, great work. Your great work through Jesus, this witness of the way that you work through Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. We ask, Lord, that today you would humble us before your throne of grace. Uh, Lord, we need you. We need you to change us because we, uh, like the dragon, can't go deep enough to rip off this, these uh, prideful qualities. But we need you to change us from the inside out. And so change our hearts, we pray. Move us into a church as a, as a gathered people who will seek your glory through humility and through dependence on you, Lord Jesus, and not ourselves. We pray and ask for this today in Jesus' name.